This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Joining me this week, Tim Bale, Professor of Politics from Queen Mary University, London. Grant Tucker from the Times Diary. But first, this is Times columnist Rachel Sylvester. The Brexiteers whipped up fears on immigration during the referendum campaign, but they've gone quiet on the issue since. It's all about regulatory alignment and the ECJ. But the Leave vote was won through a culture war. The cabinet Brexiteers must explain to their voters that there are benefits to immigration and why some free movement of people will be necessary for the sake of the economy and public services. But in a way, this is the dog that hasn't barked, or the dog whistle that hasn't barked. That, <laughs> that's what, it, it, that what, hasn't whistled. Yes, it has, the dog whistle that hasn't whistled. Why do you think that is? is? Is it because public concern about it has gone down? Is it because it's a difficult problem to solve, so politicians quite often stop talking about the thing that they don't have a ready answer to? I think it's the most difficult issue and the most potentially dangerous one of the whole Brexit vote that they played on this populist uh, mood uh, and they made promises which can't be delivered. They gave the impression that immigration would fall, you know, that they gave a sense that actually the makeup of people's towns would change and it's not going to. Uh, and they don't quite know what to do about that. And I think actually probably the cabinet Brexiteers are in denial about what they did because the, the actual leading cabinet ministers, Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, David Davis, Liam Fox, are all personally pro-immigration. So they like to say now that the vote was just about parliamentary control over the system. But actually, I think people felt, rightly or wrongly, that they were voting for fewer people to come. And I think they they played with fire and now they, they're kind of worried about getting burned. But they've got a responsibility to do what they did, to deal with what they uh, sort of opened, the Pandora's box they opened. And you've written about it in your column this week, and you'd picked out how Dominic Cummings, who was the brains of the operation of the Vote Leave campaign and previously worked for Michael Gove, and he talked about how they did, I think he described it as a baseball bat, the issue yeah, of immigration. He said something like immigration was a baseball bat. We, it was just a question of when and how to use it. Um, and I think they, the problem was they did play that card. And I, I think probably going too far to say they played the race card, but they certainly benefited from other people playing it. They made this kind of Faustian pact with Nigel or Faragian pact with UKIP, um, where they, they, they allowed the kind of leave dot 
EU, the More UKIP campaign, to launch these breaking point posters with queues of refugees. They condemned them publicly, but privately they were blowing a similar dog whistle. And even the Vote Leave, the official Gove and Johnson back campaign, um, you know, made those ridiculous claims, you know, 65 million Turks are going to join the EU. The government would be impossible to stop criminals from Turkey coming to Britain. It just wasn't true. And I think... I don't know whether they they have enough self-awareness to be slightly ashamed of what they did, but I don't think I think they're in denial actually, or they're ashamed or whatever it is, but they're not confronting this issue, and I think it's incredibly irresponsible. And I think the danger is that people could end up feeling really betrayed by the Brexit campaign and then turning to more extreme proponents of populism. Tim, part of the problem with immigration as an issue is it's a sort of difficult one to get a handle on because the number of people in jobs is a clearly identifiable. You know, if there's a town with very high unemployment, then maybe you can do something to try and get more people into work. Often what we've seen is that concern about immigration has been highest in areas where there is less of it. Um, actually, we've seen in some of the Ipsos Mori issues polling that concern about immigration has come down since the EU referendum. And actually, some of the, some of the numbers, net, mi- net migration is down by about 100,000 on where it was. But but trying to address a concern rather than a sort of physical reality is a difficult thing for a politician. So it's a false concern which has been whipped up in some cases. Trying to, to address it back is, is difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, Rachel's right about the problems that this poses for some Conservative politicians. But as you said, in some ways they are lucky because it looks like immigration is going down. Uh, that's probably more to do with the fact that the EU27's uh, economy seem to be going, well, if not great guns, and at least better than the, the UK economy. Um, so they might be able to kind of elide the problem and not have to deal with it for a little longer than, than people think. There is also another problem for them, which is Theresa May, of course. And uh, she obviously made it her mission from 2.10 onwards to do something about this, not very successfully. She's clearly interpreted the referendum uh, result as being all about immigration. And therefore, that's why we have to get out of the single market. And therefore, that's why we need a hard Brexit. Um, So, I I mean, I think it is a problem, but I'm not sure it's quite as acute as perhaps it might have been um, when we were thinking about this a couple of years ago. What do you make of this, Grant? How how big a problem do you think it is for politicians? Uh, I don't think it's a huge problem. I think Theresa May will sort it out in that she'll cut immigration. I think that's that's bad for the economy, and I agree with Rachel. Immigration is a good thing. But Theresa May is an old-fashioned Tory. Prior to the Brexit vote, she was slashing immigration. She was including student numbers into the immigration figures and cutting them. Um, and I think she'll go ahead and carry on cutting immigration. I think it will hurt the economy and public services. But that's the kind of conservative politician she is. The irony is, of course, Michael Gove... on, even if it, <laughs> Good idea or not. <laughs> but the, the irony of it is, is Michael Gove and Boris, who were the key Brexiteers, are also globalists and believe in more immigration. So... I, I, I don't see where they're going to go with this. Early on in the government, there was a cabinet meeting where this was discussed and Liam Fox started talking about, oh, well, after if EMU migration falls, we'll be able to have loads of others, you know, Australians and Americans. And Theresa May was, no, 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 no. She's maybe almost the only real anti-immigration cabinet minister at the moment. It's amazing in the way she's, she's clung to that target of tens of thousands. She's had several opportunities to drop. I mean, she could have dropped when she took over as Prime Minister and just said, well, that was a David Cameron thing. Um, and then obviously in the, the Tory manifesto this year, she she could have done the same thing. But she's just they, seen- are, they do seem to be gearing up to a change on the students, actually, because they've commissioned a study on the economic impact of um, foreign students. There are some of those papers then. 
Impact assessment papers. <laughs> Not an impact assessment paper. <laughs> That's a very different thing, Grant. That's a very different thing. No, no, no. Um, but the, so they, I, I have a sense from people in Whitehall that they may be preparing to take the foreign students out of the numbers. I don't know what Tim's heard. Well, I mean, that would be fantastic as far as universities are concerned, yeah. obviously. I mean, it's interesting when you talk to civil servants and politicians about this, they say the reason that students were included in there was actually, although people will say in opinion polls or two opinion pollsters, they don't mind about students. Um, actually, in real life, all they're looking at is foreigners and they don't know if they're students, they don't know if they're, you know, from, from wherever. So actually, they were just concerned about getting the numbers of foreigners down students or not. So perhaps there'll be some movement on that, but I don't know. Slightly playing devil's advocate, if people were concerned about immigration, it's right, isn't it, that that politicians should respond to that. And there are parts of the country where even if the numbers of people aren't that great, they've seen their towns have changed, whether that's uh, Polish shops opening up or children in their kids' school who can't speak English. So if if there has been that concern, then politicians do need to respond to it. I suppose your point is they need to do it responsibly. And also the areas where there's been the biggest change. I remember going to Wisbeach, for example, and that's been a huge change with big numbers of agricultural workers coming in and the whole town has become Little Latvia, they call it. But I don't think that's going to change following Brexit because they're still going to need people to pick the crops. And every, almost um, every cabinet minister has a special case yeah, as to why... Yeah, doesn't Amber Rudd talks about sort of nimbyism yeah. of immigration, yeah, that yeah, your yeah. own, every cabinet minister thinks their own... Michael Gove thinks farmers need seasonal workers, Jeremy Hunt thinks the NHS needs foreign nurses. You can go through almost every yeah. government department. My point was really about the danger of having raised these expectations. They have to explain now why they're not going to be fulfilled. And that's going to take a strong politician to get up and actually make the case for immigration. Why is immigration a good thing? No politician has done that. And it's going to take somebody like Michael Gove or Ruth Davidson within the Tory party to get up and make that case for immigration. Very difficult for Conservative politicians to do that because they know that immigration for them in the past has been a really good stick with which to beat Labour. And it's very, very difficult for them, I think, to put that weapon beyond use. Their only benefit is that Labour's in an even more kind of confused state about this than the Tories, or as confused. Well, Diane Abbott definitely hasn't got the memo. In it. She's the shadow Home Secretary and still talks about how marvellous free movement is. And, and, and trying, Yes, exactly, and they're trying to reach... They've got to reconnect with the heart, white working-class heartlands. Um, actually, there's a lot to be said of... for. Even I think there are people who, who backed Remain in the referendum but would say that if we are leaving then one of the upsides for them would be having some control over the numbers. I mean, part of the problem is that where you set those controls and how many people the economy actually needs is a slightly different question. Well, I'm sure it's something we'll come back to, but let's move on. And this is Tim Bale. If you made a promise to a whole bunch of people with your fingers crossed behind your back so that, as far as you're concerned, it's not really a promise at all, it's not generally a good idea to let them know you've done that until there's no chance that them finding out can blow up in your face. But that's exactly what Theresa May and David Davis seem to have done over the weekend before the EU27's heads of government are supposed to give the agreement signed in Brussels the formal nod and fire the starting gun on trade negotiations. Are the not-very-dynamic duo sneaky, snookered, or just plain stupid. Well, quite a lot there, Tim. So hurrah for Theresa May on Friday as she got the deal that, well, some of us predicted would happen all along because that's what happens in the negotiations. But she got the deal that some people said that she wouldn't. Lots of backslapping, lots of, oh, she drives a hard bargain, but we got her in the end from the EU. And then 
David David goes on the TV on Sunday and says, no, it's not real. We could go back on it all if we want to. And then on Monday, had to blow back on that again uh, by telling us that he doesn't have to be very clever in his job. He just needs to be very calm, um, which we, you'd hope for slightly more from the person in charge of these negotiations. How big a problem do you think this is? Well, I don't think it's going to get to the point this week where the heads of government turn around and say, well, you know, we can't trust you and therefore we're not actually going to let talks progress. Um, However, I do think it probably has shaken um, the faith, uh, if they have any faith, in um, Britain's uh, integrity when it comes to these kinds of promises and negotiations. And certainly it set the cat among the pigeons in Dublin, uh, for example, and, and, and with good reason, really. I mean, I think, you know, people forget that Dublin has to some extent compromised as well. Although, um, you know, Leo Varadkar might have been telling people um, back home that, you know, he got everything he wanted. Um, there was a compromise there. And any sign, I think, that, you know, the government could back out of this and suggest that perhaps it's not worth the paper it's written on in the future is going to be problematic for him. And then Therefore, problematic, I think, for the EU. And given that we've got, you know, another 12 months at least of negotiations before we can actually sort of put the the next phase um, to bed and then there'll be a transition period, I don't think we can afford as a country really to to give the impression that we can't be trusted on these things and we'll be attempting to, to wriggle out of them at any moment. Rachel, this is a problem. I mean, there's been a lot of focus on David Davis in the past couple of weeks in a way that there hasn't been really since he's been in the job. And in a way, there were two explanations and neither of them are particularly good. One is he was telling the truth on Sunday and Britain regards the agreement as perfectly possible to be torn up and ignored later on. Or the Brexit secretary is to be ignored and it actually is Theresa May's word that goes. And it, actually, this is the guy going in doing the negotiation. The idea that everything he says can be or should be ignored isn't a great position either. Isn't it sort of indicative of the whole smoke and mirrors nature of this negotiation stroke agreement, supposed agreement, um, and that actually they're, they're kind of pretending to say different things. They're saying different things to different people, really, while pretending there's this one united message. Uh, and it's just extraordinary if you've got both the Brexiteers, the Remainers, the Irish, um, you know, all happy. That can't be, they can't all be right. It's the sort of nature of the smoke and mirrors deal that... that um, he's kind of trying to leave open as many ambiguities as he can. And the problem with it is that the the further the negotiations get, the more the ambiguities close off. And somebody's going to start to get very cross, and probably everybody's going to start to get very cross very soon. I thought last week it was sort of everyone got incredibly excited, this is all a great breakthrough. But actually, it was a deal to start talking about a deal. It's really not even the end of the beginning. I mean, it's... It's just the, the cabinet hasn't even agreed what they want the end state to be. They, you know whether it's regulatory alignment or the trade-offs between free movement and economic access. And it just—I don't think it was. I mean, it was a deal, a small deal. Big, you know, it got it kept the thing going. Small but deal. That was small a big deal. deal that was, well, it wasn't really a big deal. It, it resolved nothing. Yeah. And the whole yeah. thing depended on on ambiguity and smoke and mirrors, and that's kind of what David Davis revealed. Do you think David Davis is any good? You hear mixed reports. He, when he first started, people said he was very lazy. Civil servants didn't like him. They didn't think he was reading his boxes. But then since the election, everyone says he's kind of really focused and got to grips with it more. 
He's quite, I think he's quite vain. He's got quite an inflated sense of his own. I remember going to interview him once and he had a sort of pickaxe in the corner of the room. He's this very sort of macho. He's got a climbing wall in his home in Yorkshire. Um, he's this great, he's got this sort of self-image as this action man hero. Um, so he loves sort of marching into rooms and banging heads together. But sometimes, sometimes with these kind of negotiations, it's much more about kind of the detail of the negotiation and speaking quietly and listening rather than kind of macho posturing. You get the sense, Grant, that sometimes he doesn't realise that everything that comes out of his mouth is going to be very carefully picked over and analysed. So all the stuff like you were just joking about, impact assessments, him trying to laugh, sort of laugh it off and say, well, we've assessed the impact, it's just not an impact assessment. <laughs> he thinks he's being sort of very clever and jovial but actually it sort of it irritates people unnecessarily well this weekend i think on andrew Marr, to theresa may saying we don't want to be canada we don't want to be norway then david davis goes on and said we want to be canada plus 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 when theresa may saying is the exact opposite we don't want that we want our own bespoke deal he does have a tendency of putting his foot in his mouth but he seems to be getting on with the job and it is a tough job it's just journalists and the european union just chucking crap at you all the time and whether you like it or not, we've we've got to get on with it. But I think, it, to go back to Tim's original point, the EU have said all along, nothing is agreed till everything is agreed. So there's always going to be some amb- ambiguity till we get that final deal. Yeah. But the whole point of diplomacy is you leave it as ambiguous. You mm. don't, you know, the weekend after you do the deal, begin to unravel the deal by, by suggesting, you know, that actually you weren't telling the truth when you were doing it. I mean, I think that's the problem. The other thing with David Davis, of course, is we have to consider whether he's given up his leadership ambitions or not, and apparently not. So whenever we think about what he's doing, I suppose we have to think about it with an eye as, to, you know, the, the manoeuvring uh, for position for an eventual leadership contest when May steps down or is forced down. It was striking a couple of weeks ago there was a story emerged of friends of david davis saying that he would resign if damien green was forced out unfairly which seems a strange of all the things that he would put down his sort of red line standing by these mates right to watch whatever it is he may or may not have been watching on his computer it was an odd yeah, thing to do but they go back along yes. they has got yeah. form on flouncing out but also it showed that him and Damien Green go back a long way and I think there is there is also this sense I think for the friends of David Davis who um, have hopes of him uh, getting the top job the more time goes past the less likely that is to happen you know he, his peak moment was immediately after the election when he could have been the sort of safe pair of hands if Theresa May had gone. But the longer it goes on, the, the more that somebody else might come along. Um, in the Red Box email on Tuesday morning, we asked uh, in our poll, how clever is David Davis after he said you don't need to be clever to do this? Um, currently, 19% say Brexit brain box and 59% say no brain is better than a bad brain. So <laughs> I'm not sure Red Box readers have uh, faith in uh, David Davis. Coming up, we're going to try and do what we've always vow never to do and that's make some political predictions grant tucker looking ahead to 2018 we are back after these short adverts imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast. I'm joined by Rachel Sylvester, Tim Bale, and this is Grant Tucker. 2017 has been a roller coaster year, from the death of Keith Chegwin to the general election which saw Theresa May lose her Commons majority. But what does 2018 have in store? Is Bitcoin set to replace the dollar as a global currency? Will Theresa May be ousted from office? Are the Americans on the verge of war with the North Koreans? And will Jeremy Corbyn attend the wedding of Prince Harry? They say it's a fool's game to make predictions, so let's be foolish. Well, I'm not sure what's more likely, war with North Korea or Jeremy Corbyn going to a royal wedding. Where do you want to start with all that, Grant? My main prediction for 2018 is war. I think that the Americans are going <laughs> to go to war with the North Koreans. Um, uh, lots of White House insiders and aides to Donald Trump, any profile you read, apparently he's completely obsessed with North Korea, uh, alongside President Obama and Hillary Clinton. Uh, it's one of his main bugbears. There's a huge domestic policy stalemate in America, and actually the one thing where the president is all-powerful is foreign policy. So it's something which he's able to do, I think he wants to do. And also I think the West are manoeuvring against North Korea because they simply don't want to see North Korea get a nuclear ballistic missile. And how does this play out? How long do we all last once this, once this <laughs> war gets underway? I don't think it's going to be a nuclear war. I, um, oh, uh, thank so, goodness. <laughs> oh, just a happy ending after all. <laughs> but no, that, that, that's, my, that's my prediction. So, yeah. Rachel, what do you see planning out in well, 2018? Well, most of the things we all thought a year ago we were all totally wrong about. So, But I'm, I think Boris Johnson will not be Foreign Secretary at the end of 2018. I think either Theresa May will move him that's most likely, or he will have been forced out or flounced out. Probably she'll move him. And when do you think this might happen? Well, <laughs> I think it's not impossible in the January reshuffle, if yeah. there is one. I think she's been weighing up the Philip Hammond versus Boris Johnson. Can you move both? And my instinct is that she would be more uh, keen to move Boris Johnson and offer him a more junior or alternative position. If you were Boris Johnson, would you then walk out rather than take the junior job? Well, it depends what you mean by junior. So let's say she offered him education secretary or health secretary might be a bit too contentious, but um, <laughs> so it would it, it would look pretty shoddy perhaps to walk out. But chairman, uh, he might not take. Um, anyway, I think he won't be foreign secretary by the end of the year. And what about Philip Hammond? Do you think he... Stays. I think he's got more of a chance of staying. This is probably totally wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> I think um, she needs him more. She's more in tune with him. Uh, they've had clashes, obviously, on but there, you know, there are always clashes between a chancellor and prime minister. But on Brexit, I think they're more in tune. The bar was set pretty high for his budget in terms of oh, if you know, it's got to go well, or he's got to be out, and actually he. He, did he okay. cleared it. I mean, it yeah. it landed. It hasn't unravelled in the way the that we Boris might have expected. The problem with Johnson is he's just totally ill-suited to being Foreign Secretary. He's, 
um, you know, he can't help gaffing and diplomacy like Brexit negotiations is about every word matters. That does that does presume that there is a ministry that would suit him just perfectly. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, if we think sometimes David Davis goes a bit off-piste with yeah. what he says about how the negotiations go, um, Boris Johnson, that role would be uh, even worse. What about you, Tim? What, what do you envisage Well, I'm, I think I'll make a no-change prediction, which is that, you know, come December um, 2018, we're still going to be uh, looking at Theresa May as Prime Minister, we're still going to be looking at Jeremy Corbyn as uh, Labour leader and probably Vince Cable as um, Lib Dem leader. Um, although we talk a lot about volatility in the political system, it seems as if these people, you know, are there for for some foreseeable time. I can't see the Labour membership or indeed the, the MPs being able to get rid of Corbyn even if they want to. Theresa May is there because there's no good alternative. And, well, I mean, Vince is as good as anybody else, really, in the, in the Lib Dem firmament, such as it is. On the subject of Jeremy Corbyn, he seem, it seems like in the past couple of weeks he's had a bit of a wobble, particularly on Brexit. It's the biggest issue of the day. He's got away with it up until now. I mean, the Labour manifesto was praised because it, didn't really commit to anything. How much of a danger do you think it is that just being in the job and acquiring baggage and and the sense of, you know, he's not got answers to the big questions facing the country, does that matter or is it always the reason people might vote for him is, is different to that, that the rules of Well, I engagement. think for, for the members, I mean, the, the election of 2017 was incredibly important because it will give them the opportunity every time Labour's not doing very well in the polls, every time it's not overtaking the Conservative Party, which some people claim it should be at the moment, to say, well, look what happened in 2017. It'll get better come the general election. He's a great campaigner. Um, you know, don't worry about it. And I think that is a problem for Labour because the, the, you know, the longer they hang on with that excuse, I think, the more problems uh, build up uh, and, and the more difficult it is going to be to dislodge the Conservatives, you know, if we don't have an election until the early 2020s. It does seem to be fading. And today's poll says that the Conservatives have overtaken Labour for the first time since June. If Theresa May carries on and looks reasonably competent, she'll constantly outpoll Labour, it seems. There seems to be a solid... 35, 40% of people who just simply will never, ever vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And that's the main problem which Labour actually have. And there's no Glastonbury next year, so there's no yeah. big there's no big rally it's for him. It's a fallow year. It's a fallow year. So we're not going to have any... Um... I mean, the, the, the Labour's still got the problems that it's had for a very long time. It's not seen as economically competent. It's not seen as a party that you can nationally trust uh, in government. And it's got a leader who, as Grant says, many people still feel is a problem. And those those things aren't going away. And yet they're hidden by the kind of star quality that, that Jeremy Corbyn has for the members. And the problem is that star quality is false, isn't it? So it's based on that a lot of the younger members, the Glastonbury crowd, are incredibly pro anti-Brexit, pro-European, but actually Jeremy Corbyn instinctively has always been hostile to Europe and he's at least sort of ambiguous on Brexit now. He, he may end up shifting, actually, I think, on Europe because he'll realise he's so out of step with the members who adore him and in order to survive, he needs to keep them on side. Hmm. Is there a risk that we end up making the same mistake that we've kept making about Jeremy Corbyn in that actually the, what, what is motivating him and how his campaign is building... It does go against the traditional rules. Does it matter if you're not seen as that economically competent if the government is ploughing ahead <laughs> yes, with Brexit and the impact that that might have on the 
um, economy. I mean, the, the strong and the stable. Is the Tories have made themselves into at least as risky an option as exactly. Labor, that's yeah. They? That's what the, yeah. And on a really cheerful note, we're probably due a recession by the time of the next general election. So if Tories look, we're in a recession, they look economically incompetent. People to go, why not? Let's take a risk. Jeremy Corbyn can't be any worse. And infl- inflation's now up to over three point one percent. That's you know that's the sort of stuff which starts eating into the Tories' claim to be uh, economically competent. Well, on the subject of money, has anybody ever owned a Bitcoin? I'm quite convinced I bought about £10 worth in, in about 2012. Oh, we were worth about a billion on pounds the, now. On, on the top, I don't know how much it should be worth, but it was on an old laptop and I don't have that laptop anymore. That it, was like this excuse, liberta- yeah. it was like this libertarian thing at the time and I just thought it was a bit kooky and people using it on the dark web to buy drugs and prostitutes and all that kind of stuff. That's, that's where you bought them. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I know some people who have made a hell of a lot of money out of it. Um, it's just insane. Really? Yeah. I just don't really even understand it particularly. And I, I keep reading about it. Somebody said if you if you bought a hundred dollars worth, buy it, them? just buy them on an exchange on on the internet. Um, but if you bought a hundred dollars worth in twenty eleven or twenty ten, you'd now be have three hundred ninety three million. Wow! Goodness. So that's quite an investment. And you you, you think that you flat. might have done that? The bubbles. All no, I definitely flat. didn't buy a hundred dollars oh, right. worth now. Is it a bubble? Do you I think it's knows. all going to collapse? No, I don't. I think it's going to carry on riding high. Mainly because the thing that Bitcoin has is that it provides stability in unstable countries. If you're in a country where the government's melting down, there's, say, say Zimbabwe five years oh, ago, where do, you store, where, where, <laughs> where do you store your wealth? Well, you, you, you put it in this safe uh, encryption currencies, basically. What can you spend it on, though, Grant? Well, drugs and prostitutes, as Grant, as Grant <laughs> okay, told us. But yeah. I mean, can you, you can't use it in Morrison's, can you? That's the main... No, no. not yet. Uh, but you just would then convert it into another currency. But uh, let's wait and see. Well, we've, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground. Immigration, Brexit, uh, the state of the Tory party, the state of the Labour party, and what you can spend a Bitcoin on. That's all we've got time for uh, this week, though. Um, as ever, sign up to my morning email, thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox, where you can also find details of how you can buy a red box mug just in time for Christmas. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device. But for now, from Rachel, Tim, Grant and me, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.